This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Karen Sigun, RN. She says her mother and grandmother taught her how to sew and to recycle things. So she has used colorful scraps from her quilting projects to make hundreds of masks for people who need them. Sigund wanted to be a nurse since she was a child in a small northern New York town. She went to Albany Medical School of Nursing where she appreciated hands-on learning and still works at Albany Med. She pursued a bachelor's and then a master's degree while raising with her husband three boys, all the while continuing her nursing career. Now that Albany Med and some other area hospitals are opening up for elective surgeries, Sigun says hospitals are safe places. So Karen is um, a nurse at Albany Medical Center, and I'd just like to start with the beginning of your journey to becoming a nurse. Um, Could you just tell us at what point in your life you decided that this was going to be your career? Well, I grew up on a small farm in northern, um, up in northern New York, and uh, my dad worked in a hospital um, on weekends as like a nursing assistant. So I think that's probably where I got my idea. And then in high school, I did a candy striper thing. And um, wait, wait, back up and tell who, people. I don't think people know what candy stripers are. Go tell us a little about that. <laughs> in high school, you could go um, volunteer in the hospital. Um, and help serve food and get an idea of what um, it's like to work in a hospital. Um, just So we had a future nurses club um, in our high school, so we get, um, got to go into the hospital and see what it was about. So, And then when my dad worked in his stories, um, that's, that's how I got my idea of being a nurse to begin with. And then you... Then fu- I had a... Then I had a cousin who actually went to Albany Med School of Nursing way back when, and she um, encouraged me to go, so um, I did. And by the time I got to nursing school, she was an instructor there for a little while. So it was um, just kind of um, meant to be, I think. Yeah, well, that's a big leap. You went from a small northern town into the heart of Albany. How was that adjustment? Well, um, back then, uh, there was a nurse's residence there at Albany Med, and you really couldn't go very far without checking in. So on my area, I got to see Washington Park and maybe um, a little bit downtown. We used to walk downtown all the time, 10 o'clock at night to go check out Corning Tower. It was safe back then. So, I mean, I'm talking late 70s. Yeah. So... All these years as a nurse, have you ever had a moment where your commitment wavered or where you felt like, oh, gosh, this is just too hard? No. Um, I think um, it's too bad there aren't nursing programs like what Albany Med had um, back then. It was a three-year diploma program. And um, just like the two-year schools and the four-year schools, you um, complete your program and sit and take your um, state boards. And um, But the advantage of the three-year program is you are actually on the unit within um, 
a month of starting school and you um, got lots and lots of experience and everything. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So how is it different now? What is the training now? The training now um, is more, isn't as clinical. I mean, there's clinical hours, obviously, but the nurses coming out of nursing school these days have li- very limited clinical experience. Um, you know, it's very basic. And then when they graduate, it's almost like on-the-job training um, to get into the area that you want to uh, practice in. Yeah, it sounds like the old system uh, had more hands-on earlier, which would be very valuable, I think. So it yes, it was. It's more. It's more valuable. But um, what the problem with that is is my my program had very few um, college credits. I think we had fifteen college credits when we completed it. Um, whereas now everything is um, focused on having. Hopefully, a bachelor's degree as a minimum starting level. And through the years, you're now into a management position. Is that right at Albany Med? Tell us what your job is like. Um, I, I guess you'd have to walk through two different days for us. I, you'd probably have to walk through a typical day before the pandemic and then a typical day now, because I imagine it's quite different, is it? Um, it is different. Um, I'm actually, uh, I was a manager. Um, I, I've always been an ICU nurse. Um, and I was a manager up until about three years ago. Um, and then I had the opportunity to um, do what's called a utilization review. And I can explain that in a minute. But um, as a manager um, and seeing my old colleagues, what they're doing now is um, the whole preparation for the COVID, uh, making sure the staff are prepared, have what they need, um, respond to what administration wants to put in place, um, you know, just make sure patients and uh, staff are safe. Um, we've had experiences like this in the past, like when the SARS happened before, you know, with the fear of SARS coming mm-hmm. to the United States. And it's very similar, you know, making sure that the equipment and the supplies are there for good patient care. I know there was a press conference early on when Albany Med was getting ready for the onslaught, I guess, for lack of a better word. And uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna was saying how that you are prepared for this, that you had this whole unit that was ready to go and you know, have things um, needed if there was something like this coming. But still, it must have affected, did it affect morale or how people were responding to work? Did it feel uh, threatening or frightening? Or um, what, what was the kind of mental state as the pandemic was approaching but not yet here? I think there's a, a bit of adrenaline that everybody gets. Um the unit, uh, the primary units that have the COVID patients in the intensive care units um, used to be my units, and I'm very proud of the staff. And I see um, some of the postings on Facebook of, um, you know, their trials and, you know, and um, how they've had to do things differently. Mm-hmm. And and I am very proud of them. They have that adrenaline and that 
want to take care of these patients to do, provide the best care for them. And, you know, the other big issue is um, they're not allowing family and friends to visit. So these staff are the family and friends that are taking care of these patients. Yeah, that must be especially an added burden. Um, I did an obituary recently um, talking to the sister of somebody who had died. It wasn't in your hospital. It was in uh, St. Peter's. But, um, you know, she just described it as brutal because she couldn't see her brother. Um, She was able to have a Skype connection to him. But um, it must put an added an added burden on the staff, I would think, trying to kind of stand in for family um, as somebody is dying. Yeah, I think that um, my staff and the people who are currently working in those units are so compassionate and um, would do anything that they could to try to bring, you know, their family or um, the family closer, as close as they can be. Um but also to give, you know, um, the personal touch and, you know, and, you know, telling the patients that, you know, um, it's okay that they're going to tell their loved ones, you know, uh, what's going on. Um, I recently um, told someone who had a uh, close family member in a hospital that could see, you know, Maybe they could make some recordings and ask the nurses to play the recordings or, or you know, um, play their favorite music or something because maybe that would help them recover or whatever um, or feel more safe in their environment. You know, we don't know if it works, but I've seen it work. Yeah, that's a nice idea. Well, I saw by looking online, you're somebody that's actually done research. There was a paper I found um, called The Effect of a Family Support Intervention on Physician, Nurse, and Family Perceptions of Care in the Surgical, Neurological, and uh, Medical Intensive Care Units. And not being an academic myself, <laughs> just reading through it, it seemed like what you concluded from that study was that it really did help families, um, you know, if they were part of this, you know, process, um, they felt um, more. Just tell us a little about that research. I shouldn't try to paraphrase it because you were in the middle of it and understand it well. Sure, that was quite a few years ago, but I don't think it changes. Um, I think that um, what we felt was that many times the um, patients or the families felt that they weren't getting um, consistent or continued um, information because they're under a lot of stress. They may not hear what the doctors and nurses are telling them. Um, Sometimes the doctors don't have time, especially maybe in the the surgical side of things when the doctors are in the operating room um, and have limited time to be able to speak to families. So um, the person who was head of ethics um, at the time um, got a grant to do this research and try to help show that having dedicated um, people in the ICU to touch base with um, family members and given that consistent information from the doctors would um, greatly help their satisfaction 
going through the process um, from the intensive care unit onto the medical unit where there's less staff and then on to rehab or whatever. And it did show that um, it was very, very, it was much more positive having uh, a dedicated spokesperson um, with the idea that it might be like a nurse practitioner um, that worked with the, those groups mm-hmm. to help relay that information and um, and get the, um, you know, develop that trust between the families and the hospital staff. Yeah, it sounds like an excellent idea. And it just, having been a patient in a hospital, which most of us have been, it seems like the person you relate to as a patient is the nurse, not the doctor. You mentioned, you know, sometimes doctors don't have time. And it just, if you could talk a little about the role of a nurse's communicator, because that just seems, in addition to the medical knowledge you bring to the job, this idea of you know, informing the patient. It seems like the nurse is the one who is in close contact with the patient and that really there's the patient's sense of comfort seems to depend much more, I think, on the nurse than the doctor. (laughs) Maybe that's just my own perception. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, that's absolutely true because it's the nurse that's at the bedside 24-7, especially in the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. And, um... And even in the medical units, the nurses are there um, around the clock, whereas the doctors come in and do the rounds in the morning and pretty much leave. So they're the go-between between the patient and the doctors. So, you know, that consistency and communication so that everybody's on the same page is really important. And I think the nurse plays the critical role there. Yeah, I do too. So is does nurse training include like communication work? Is that part of what nurses train for? Or is that just no, something I intuitive that's part of your personality? I think um part of your personality and on the job training. Yeah. Um and it's gonna depend on the doctors you work with because some doctors are very um good about um you know, making sure they communicate to the, the patients and families, others aren't. So um, knowing, you know, what you're going to get from one person versus another so that um, you can give the right information um, is really important. Yeah. So when earlier in the conversation, we kind of hit a V in the road where you had said you did something called a utilization review and you were going to tell us about that. And I'm not familiar at all with what that is. Sure. Um, About three years ago, um, I changed um, jobs um, to, I, so I left the nursing management team and I was um, lucky enough to um, get a position in the case, it's case management department. And one of the roles in the case management department is um, utilization review nurse. So I got to learn something new, totally different. And what I do is, um, is I write clinical summaries of the um, doctor's um, notes in the chart um, and submit them to the insurance companies so they know what's going on with the patient and so that the hospital um, bills properly and also gets paid properly. And has that work changed with the pandemic? Is that become a more intense sort of job? Do you have more people, you know, coming through that have to, you know, have those services performed? Well, we have to write a clinical uh, summary for any patient that comes in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and communicate with the insurance companies. But um, I think, um, so the work hasn't really changed um, as far as that goes. But part of what I do and I feel is important is to help the nurses understand the process from the, you know, insurance payment side of things so that they know what they need to document, um, what they need to look for. Um, it's given me um, a different perspective because I'm not in an intensive care unit anymore. So understanding what the nurses at the bedside um, that have a heavier workload, um, you know, I, I can help them um, know what to, what to look for, what to do. And they frequently come to me and ask me questions based on my experience, which makes me feel like I'm helping them. Yeah, that's great. You have that former ICU experience, so you can relate to exactly what they're doing. I'd also like to hear just about how nursing fits in with the rest of your life, which I know very little about. I know you live in Bern, um, but tell us just about, um, do you have family? Um, how, what's the rest of your sure. life, and how does it, and over the years, how does it fit in with this really stressful career of nursing? Well, um, I have, I'm a husband and three boys. Um, my, they're all grown and um, out of the house now. But um, my oldest actually works for Albany Med. Oh, my um, goodness. He was, um, he worked, well, he was a director for the Center for Donation and Transplant um, uh, office in Albany, which is part of Albany Med. And I was really proud of him for getting that position because um, when I was in the ICU, I worked Closely with, um, I was one of two nurses that was on a national collaborative on um, looking at ways to increase donation and transplant. So uh, when he started working there, I was very happy. Um, he just recently um, changed uh, roles at Albany Med, and he's going to be a, a project leader. So that'll be very interesting for him. Um, my second um, son is does roofing. And my third um, is in construction. So they're all three very busy boys, and um, two are married, one's not yet. And um, I have one grandson. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's great. But I'd like to just go back and hear a little. I wanted to hear more about your personal life, but this is just too interesting to miss asking about. This idea of being on this national collaborative team to increase um, donations um, for transplants. Tell us a little about that. Um, That was back in the mid-2000s. Albany Med, um, there was like 200 hospitals across the nation that joined this um, national collaborative um, that was organized through um, Health and Human um, Resources, HHS, I think is the name. Um, And we would um, do video conferences and we would meet uh, like quarterly in um, some city in the United States and all get together and we would present ideas so that we could share across the country on how what we were doing to try to um, improve things like communication with physicians and um, you know public um, um, public education about um, you know organ donation um, things like that and then it um, evolved into well, how can we increase 
opportunities for transplant um, based on, um, you know, people's knowledge and wanting to donate organs. So um, we we were involved in that for about five years, I think. And um, all the med um, won some HHS medals. And it was just very humbling to hear um, all the wonderful stories across the nation and even in other countries um, participated at times. So it was just trying to standardize and, you know, try to, um, you know, make the best of a very sad situation sometimes. Yes, over the years I've done stories on both the families that have lost someone and had an organ transplanted, but then also on the families who have had a recipient, and it is such a such a moving and almost miraculous thing. But I wish I had known we were going to discuss this topic because I would have looked up numbers. But I, I seem to remember that New York State, it's, there, there's, a mu- there's a much greater need for organs than there are people willing to donate them. And it just seems like such a shame when once someone has died, they can't use their organs. And I just wonder, like, what is the solution to get more people um, willing to do that. I guess having the sign-on on the driver's license must have helped somewhat when that was instituted, um, you know, so that that would be with someone when they died and someone would be able to find it and know. Does, do you have any other sort of thoughts on how to encourage people to make that commitment? Well, I think there's been a, um, a lot of progress made in the um, driver's license, um, you know, um, making sure that um, people know what people's wishes are. But I think there's still a great fear on the family side that, um, you know, sometimes people don't always want to respect what the um, person's wishes were. I may not agree with the concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's still a lot of uh, room for education in the community. I think there's some thought that, you know, or the organ donation groups are going to automatically say, you know, you know, they said they want to be a donor, they're a donor, and we're taking them to the operating room. But that doesn't happen here in Albany, I know, for a fact. Um, they always touch base with the families, and they'll let them know that, um, you know, their loved one wanted to be a donor. But they don't, nece- they don't necessarily... They'll work with the families in order to um, help do that process. And if they ultimately said, no, I do not believe that, um, you know, they would proceed further because they want to make sure everybody's on the same page. So whatever families can do to each, you know, within each other to help them know what their wishes are is really important before they get in a situation where they have to make hard decisions. Oh, isn't that good advice? So the fact that I've signed my driver's license isn't enough. I should go tell my husband, hey, <laughs> you know, if this happens, this is what I want. Oh, isn't that good? Good to know. I hope yeah. people I hope people hear that and take note of it because it seems like such a miraculous thing to be able to save someone's life and what a shame, you know, to let that go to waste. But I got all And I think there I think I I think there's also, I'm sorry, I think there's also a fear that, um, you know, people might be after organs and they, the person that may, may have not really died. And um, these organ donation um, groups really um, 
go through a lot, a lot of steps with the neurologist and everybody to assure. I mean, there's all kinds of horror stories out there, but I feel would feel comfortable if they, if they would go through the many, many steps to ensure that somebody was brain dead or whatever before they would proceed to the next step. So I wouldn't want people to be fearful of that. Oh, that's another good point. So you're thinking a lot of families don't want to do the organ donation because they're afraid that the person has not actually died and they want to they want to keep that hope alive. I see. Wow. That's a tough yeah. situation yeah. to be in, isn't it? Ooh. Well, I was trying to get on the lighter side of your life, and so your three, <laughs> your three sons all grown up to be productive young men, and I'm just wondering what it was like during the year. Did you work as a nurse during the years that you were also raising them with your husband? Were you, or did you take oh, time off to oh, stay? Oh yeah. No, you worked. No, there? I didn't. I never took any time off. Actually, um. When our first son was born, we built our house up here in Bern, so that was that. And then my first two are very um, only a year apart. And then um, when they were little, I started working on my bachelor's degree through Regents College, plus work, plus taking care of them. And then I, um, and then t- uh, my third son was born in the early '90s, and um, so I finished my bachelor's degree, and then in the mid 2000s. I had the opportunity to uh, to start my master's. So I have a master's in nursing through Excelsior College that I finished around 2010-11 when my oldest son was finishing his master's. So so no, I worked, went to school, and took care of everybody. Oh, my gosh. Well, do you have any advice for young mothers that might be listening to this? (laughs) I mean, that's even more than I thought, doing the... further education at the same time that you're working and raising three sons. Any advice or thoughts on, was it a good thing in retrospect for you that you did that? It was. Um, it took me some convincing that I needed to do that. Again, you know, there's always a, been a push to, to have um, a minimum education of a bachelor's degree for nursing. And um, there's been program or things coming out about every 10 years. Well, you have 10 years to get to the next step or whatever. And I was in the management side of things. So to set a good example and to have a minimum standard is really kind of what pushed me to make sure I got my education up to date. So I was kind of already doing the things that the education was teaching me, but it gave me a better understanding of why we had to do what we did. So, um, I would give the advice that if anybody has the opportunity through their work, well, whether it's nursing or anything else, there's a lot of opportunities with programs, online programs, if you can't go to a regular college. Again, I went to Excelsior College for my master's. Most of it was online. Um, my boys kind of got tired of me sitting at the kitchen table on a Saturday <laughs> and Sunday writing papers and whatever, but we all got through it. So are taking my books to the little league games and, you know, trying to um, do homework while I was watching a game or something. Um, but it worked out, you know, I took my time. I didn't put myself on a, a deadline of, I got to get this done within two years. I took one, maybe two classes at a time and, you know, you get, you get through it. 
Wow, I think you're amazing. Well, what was it like to have you and your oldest son working on a master's degree at the same time? Did, I mean, because you had some overlap in your fields. I mean, did you have fascinating discussions and compare notes? Or uh, he he went to Union for his uh, master's business, and um, and his wife, my daughter-in-law, also went to Union for a master's in teaching at the same time. So they were pretty much. Um, they weren't married at the time, but uh, they we had some opportunities for discussions, and some of the things that we were learning were very similar. Mine was more health-related, or his was maybe more marketing, business-related. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was interesting to hear the things that were similar and and how the programs overlapped. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, also, I wanted to ask about Helen in her letter had written how you've made masks for people in all your no free time. What inspired you to do that? And tell us, you must be somebody who knows how to sew. Uh, How do you fit that in with everything else? Well, now that my boys are all out of the house, um, I've sewn a little bit here. and I've sewn since I was a kid. My grandmother and my mother, um, you know, taught me and I learned how to recycle things, and that's how I grew up. Um, so now that my kids are out of the house or whatever, and my husband likes to do woodworking, I have one of the bedrooms um, into a sewing room, and um, I make quilts. I make a lot of baby blankets and some bigger ones, and I have lots and lots and lots of material. So um, when this whole thing started with COVID, I was afraid that there'd be a lot of older people any or anybody really that needs to go to the grocery store, needs to go to the doctor's office that would need a mask. So I started cutting up some of my scraps and um, some of my other material, and I just started making some masks. I had no idea how many, who would want them. And um, I made like 80 to begin with, and they went flying out of the house. I made another 80 or so, and um, they uh, were going, and um, I have family that lives up in Watertown area, uh, Utica, and up by Saratoga. Um, I even gave some away this past couple days um, down to Binghamton, so um, for people I uh, knew from camp. So they, um, people have wanted them, and actually I got up this morning and made a few more because my neighbor said that he knows a couple elderly people that needed some. So I just decided, you know, let me use what I have. And, um, it, you know, people might feel safer if they have that mask. Yeah, it's certainly recommended now. I think that's just wonderful. And my guess is that these are like leftover quilting materials that they're they're pretty too. <laughs> you know, most of us are wearing those stock, you know mass-produced ones that are just blue or whatever the paper fabric is, uh, and I bet these have some personality. Yes, they do. And um, I, I've made T-shirt quilts before, and there's an interfacing that goes in them that make them a little bit stiffer and a little bit more durable when you wash them. So um, they, I don't know. I've enjoyed making them. Well, our time is run out so quickly. Do you have any closing thoughts or things that you'd like people to know that we haven't touched on or that are important to you? I think that um, with the COVID epidemic, 
I would want people to feel um, comfortable that the hospitals are a safe place. I think the hospitals have gone above and beyond in trying to make sure that everybody is in a safe environment. Um, as the hospitals start opening up again, I think, you know, people, I don't want, people shouldn't be afraid to go have their surgery. Um, I have a brother in Syracuse or in uh, Utica that is an amputee and he's got to have a revision on his stump. And then the COVID thing happened and um, they had to put it off. So um, I talked to him a couple times and he's got it rescheduled and, you know, he wants to get it done and he feels comfortable coming to the hospital. So I guess I would just tell people, don't be afraid to go to the hospital if you're sick. You get the care that you need. People will take good care of you. Um, I think you're, the, it's less safe out in the community, and that's where you need your masks and, you know, your hand sanitizer and, you know, take good care of yourself and stay healthy. Um, eat well, sleep well, and get your rest. All excellent advice. Thank you, Karen.